You're listening to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Hosted by Rev Yearwood, Mustafa Santiago Ali, and me, Antonique Smith. Each week we host important conversations with innovators, policymakers, cultural influencers, and movement leaders who are leading the way to a 100% clean energy and just world. Everyone, welcome to our, our second hour of this very important show, The State of the Climate. We, were, we want to remind everyone to join in the conversation by calling 202-588-0893. Again, that was 202-588-0893. We are blessed to be joined by Dr. Adrian Hollis. Uh, Rosemary Enobake, Dr. Michael Dorsey, and Kristen Mink. For those listening on the Think 1% podcast on iTunes, this is part two of our special two-hour special on the state of the climate, which we are broadcasting from the WPFW studios, Pacifica in Washington, D.C., right before President Trump's State of the Union address. Reverend Antonique, the first hour was incredible, and now we have a truly all-star cast of leaders We have led, who have continually led the movement and know the climate and environmental world inside out. Antonique, are you there? I'm here, yes. Was anyone surprised by what you heard and read on the, green, the new Green 2.0 report, which, as we discussed in the last hour, that says that we're moving backwards on diversity at all levels in both the foundations and the big environmental organizations. I mean, were y'all surprised? I was surprised. No, no, I was surprised as well in, in, in that aspect. Um, and before we actually jump right into the mission, people hear everybody's, we have a, their voices. So, Dr. Hollis, just say your name so you can, I want people to hear your voice and who, who you are. Adrian Hollis. I'm Kristen Mink. I am Rosemary Anabakari. Michael Dorsey from Detroit here in D.C., Rev. <laughs> Fantastic. And I'm Mustafa Santiago Ali. All right. So the question from, from Antonique is, were you surprised by the Green 2.0 report? Anybody want to leap in there? Dr. Dorsey, I see your face looking at me with shaking your head. <laughs> oh, no. We can't be surprised, Rev, by perennial endemic racism. We can't be surprised by institutionalized racism that is endemic at the grass tops of the height of the environmental movement. This is a persistent problem that has been with us, not only in environmental organizations, but in their funders, in some of their leading, quote unquote, leaders, ostensibly weak leaders, no doubt, as well as some of the members of the, of the rank and file. This is a persistent problem going back really now a generation, a generation and a half, the, the problem of environmental racism. It's not just a problem of the siting and placing of hazardous materials in communities of color, but it's also the problem of the persistent lack of leadership of color and diverse voices in the rank and file, as well as at the top of the environmental movement. Nothing surprising here. The problem, though, is how will the environmental justice response, how will the response that's around this table offer up, not just to correction, but push forward with the path to go forward? That's what we got to think about. Mm, so much. Yeah. So this is Adrian. For the very reasons that you gave, Michael, I was surprised. I thought that after the first report came out, 
that people would, you know, wake up and there would be, an, you know, a total shift. I didn't think everybody was going to make that move immediately, but I thought we'd see bigger numbers and that they would be going up instead of going down. So I'm surprised at that reaction, I think, from the people. Mm-hmm. This is Kristen. Um, I, I tr- I'm trying to stop being surprised whenever it turns <laughs> out that racism is indeed as prevalent and and uh, and problematic, uh, you know, as it has been for decades. Um, I mean, it's a systemic problem. It, and this this kind of reminds me of um, like the suffrage movement, you know, and the uh, women's right mo- women's rights movement, which was the white women's rights movement. And it took a long yeah. time. We're still, you know, working past that. Mm. You look at the problem that was faced with the with the first women. Women's March being, you know, overwhelmingly white in the eyes of some and also in statistics. But they worked really hard to 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 turn that around for the, you know, for the for the next Women's March. So I I think that what we need to see is a similar movement happening here that's been uh, that we've been working on in the feminist movement, which is to promote voices of color and and really let them step into the leadership roles, because who's going to know better what needs to be done and what needs to be changed uh, than those most marginalized communities. If we're only addressing issues that are that are affecting the least marginalized among us we're not we're not addressing the issue and when it comes to the environment uh, th- this really at its core this affects all of us this is right. this is the earth so that's right mm-hmm. yeah Whatever. so this is rosemary honestly i was not shocked for me i came into this movement in 2013 mm-hmm. uh, i went to the environmental protection agency and one of the things that i constantly saw was that i was the only black woman in the room mm-hmm. and that was daunting to me i'm like wow this is insane like these groups are talking about how they're fighting for vulnerable communities, but there's nobody in the room to be at the table to talk about it. I'm the only one. And so that was the reason why I decided after I left the Obama administration to stay in the environmental movement. Um, And I stayed for a little while and I was still the only black person in the room. Uh, And and it's a a burden. It's a burden to carry, honestly. Mm. Um, And one of the things that I heard in the last segment was talking about tokenism. That's a real thing. Um, and it's a it's a big problem. And, you know, honestly, it's a lonely place when you're in this space. You're doing you're trying to do the good work, but you're fighting the fight kind of by yourself when you're here in these organi- organizations. And it's just a hard place. So honestly, I wasn't surprised. But I think that we're definitely trying to figure out ways to 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 be around it. But what we got to do is stop talking about it and be about it. Mm. Um, I feel uh, like we have so many meetings to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's like the buzzword now within this space. But <laughs> just trying to figure out what can you do about it is is the big thing for me. So Mustafa, I want you to come with this next one. I, I kind of want to give a framework real quick. I think it's, it's important. First, for those who are tuning in, you're tuning in to Think 1%, the coolest show on climate change. And we're having this conversation on the state of, of the climate. Um, and we're dealing with the Green 2.0 report that came out. Um, and the, we just talked about that. But the Green 2.0 pretty much said this. For a period of year, they've been looking at primarily how many people of color were working for green organizations. And it was a pretty dismal number a while ago. And then many People thought it would get better because they put out the report and did the research. And this last report that just came out, the numbers got worse. So in other words, that it was already so hard to have an organization that was almost 
close to being 90, 95% white, that literally they found a way to become whiter. Like in the time frame, they, they got to like 98% white. And so literally, <laughs> that's what we're discussing. And I, I wanted to kind of take the second foremost. I was spoke to say this, that for those who are on this show today, they are courageous because we're already saying there aren't that many black people sometimes in this movement and they are willing to speak out right now, mm-hmm. not because they're trying to shame, but there's a bit of bringing things and accountability and measurability. But what they're saying is this, and we've already asked this question that everybody in this room and, and, and on the line, Antonique and those who are calling in, climate change is real. And because it's real and because it will impact people of color first and worst, that we're saying that the makeup that we are right now doesn't allow for a solution. All we're saying that is not about this job, that when we're all gone and when we all moved on and our, and our existence and our children are now here, we don't want them to be dealing with what is already happening with, with category five and category six storms or whatever else. We're saying this is, this is a family conversation on this night because this can't continue how it is. And I say that because for folks who are listening, I don't want you to then then take these folks who are in the room and on the conversation and who are being courageous, which you're seeing now is courage at a high level to then not have them be in positions or to target them or to silence their voice. This is not about silencing voices. This is about all of us as family, black, white, brown, yellow, red, male, female, straight, gay, theist, atheist, humans coming together to say we have to to find a solution for climate change. And so please, I just want to put that out there for those who are listening, getting a little getting a little tight, getting a little upset. They feel like, oh man, it's a little rough. They're picking on me. I just need you to understand that this show is done because we must survive as humanity. Mustafa. Yeah, so let's just break it down because all the folks who are here in the room are leaders in the environmental and climate space. So let's talk a little bit about what and, you know, what is right in the environmental movement. And we've been talking a little bit about what is wrong. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit also about, you know, this lack of progress or is there progress and folks just haven't seen it. Um, And we'll start with Dr. Dorsey, because I know you got a lot to say about this. Well, well, you know, before we get on to what is right, Hmm. Let us take a, a second to do some of the forensics on what was wrong. You know, mm-hmm. full disclosure, I mm-hmm. was a co-founder of the Green 2.0 initiative, yeah. you know, yeah. was involved in this last report. And, you know, some of the groups, and we, we're in the business of naming names because we have to name names, you know, some of the groups like Oceana were being asked for their data for the past two years. So it's not that groups didn't turn up recently. <laughs> they haven't been turning up consistently. And it's that, that's the context we need to understand. Right. Groups like Greenpeace not reporting the diversity of their senior staff. Mm. You know, how long do we have to have a woman at the helm for years and years before they can't report the obvious? Uh, you know, other groups, the Energy Foundation, Climate Works, and so forth, not offering up data that they full well know. Uh, we, we can't be tricked and, and, and fooled to think that, well, they weren't given enough time for this report. They've been given years in and out over and over, and that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. But when we think about what's good, because I, I want to focus there as well, mm-hmm. 
I, I take that up from the vantage where I come from, working in the renewable energy space. From 2016, back 40 years, mm -hmm. that's the time it took us to install solar on a million homes in the United States. What did it take for that next million? That next million took two years from 2016 to just last year. So if there's something that's good, the horizon is looking renewable, not because some wayward environmental groups couldn't get their act together for the people of this nation, but because the prices are right, the numbers are on our side, the economics are on our side, the returns are to our communities, the change is coming, and it is truly that trillion-dollar-plus train that will change not only the lives of this country, but the lives of those on the margins that have been feeling the brunt of environmental racism, whether or not Greenpeace reports how many colored folks they got or not, whether or not Oceana gets his act together and hires more people or tells us how many people they haven't been hiring. We can put all that to side because the reality is, is change is coming and it's not just a win. It is a gale force event changing the way we understand economics, changing the way we understand environmental protection, and changing how we will begin to engage with each other in the short-term future. I'll tell you that that next million to get to three million will be under a year, and the million after that will probably be shorter than that and so forth. We're talking about exponential changes. Mm, 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 mm. Ladies, I see you nodding your head back and <laughs> forth, so hop in there. So I, I'm a teacher, and so I spend a lot of my time focused on the youth. And I will say that while we're talking about what's good, some of the youth climate movements that we're seeing are giving me a lot of hope these days because we're seeing, you know, groups like the Sunrise Movement, like This Is Zero Hour, talking openly about this exact issue, about environmental justice, environmental racism, about the lack of diversity that we see in, in leadership, about the lack of elevation of those marginalized voices. These kids are speaking up about those issues and they are populating the leadership of their groups with a lot of diverse voices. So I think one thing that uh, that we can do is to try to support those youth as much as possible and to elevate their voices, although, although they're doing a great job on their own. And I'm, I'm excited to see that the Sunrise Movement, who has been championing uh, the Green New Deal for a while now, that they have uh, that they have a voice in Congress now with Alexander. Andrea Ocasio-Cortez, that uh, she, I think next week, is going to be releasing a bill. And she sent out a letter a day or two ago that said, I'm just going to read you a quick line from it, that said that the Green New Deal will, quote, promote justice and equity by preventing current and repairing historic oppression to frontline and vulnerable communities. Mm -hmm. And we just haven't seen a lot of language like that at the congressional level. And so I really appreciate everything that the youth has done and is continuing to do to fight for their futures and ours. Without a doubt. Rosemary? Um, I think the thing that I have seen is public awareness. Um, that gives me hope. Uh, Flint and so many other things have really caused people to question what's happening in my own backyard. Mm -hmm. So it's not that people aren't interested and it's not that people don't 
know what's happening. It's that we got to go out and find the folks who who are trying to do this work. I think one of the things that I, I've seen, I went back to my alma mater. I'm going to give a little shout out to Spelman College. Right. Um, shout out to Spelman. <laughs> they, are, they have built out an environmental program that has been phenomenal. When I was at Spelman, honestly, I couldn't tell you what the Environmental Protection Agency was. Mm-hmm. But then I went back recently and there's an entire department that's working to engage young people on this issue and connecting it back to health and how it's all just one big circle. Mm-hmm. Environmental issues are connected to public health issues. This is a public health issue and making that connection. You know, when I was at the Environmental Protection Agency, I went around to, to schools like Meharry and to Morehouse School of Medicine. And, and these students are talking about how this stuff is connected, how environmental issues are harming communities' health. And I am encouraged by that because those folks are going to be the, the leaders who are coming into these roles and making those connections for people. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Dr. Thank you. First, I want to give a shout out to Meharry. <laughs> and Shout Jackson State University in Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to say that in my former positions, I've been, you know, around, you know, I was a child prodigy, as we all know. So I'm still very young. Um, what, I, what I'm noticing, uh, you know, I've heard from people in organizations that I've left, the young people who work there are demanding diversity, equity mm-hmm. and inclusion. Yeah. And that's good. You know, Um I think it's being well received or um, I hear from them. I, th- I hope it's being well received, but I think that there's some positive moves from inside of um, uh, these organizations. And I remember when I was at a particular organization that um, there were just murmurs of discontent mm-hmm. and now there's screams. You know, mm-hmm. people are really, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that they are being heard. And I like that. So, yeah, I think there is that cultural shift that that's beginning to happen where folks are saying this is just unacceptable. Um, that, that is true, Mustafa. But Mustafa, see, this is the thing. So we, we have real talk here, right, Mustafa? Yes, we do. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's right. Antonika, you you down with that? <laughs> yes, All you right. know I am. So, so if, if, I, I mean, and, and I thank all of you, but I think, to be honest, and since all of y'all are friends, and this is a family conversation, I think that part of the problem is... Maybe not, maybe not like Dorsey as much. He was a little bit, but I think rest. All, but I think a little bit even at the end there. I think that are people of color just too nice? And let me explain when I say that. Is that listen? We just had a report that came out that talked about that the numbers of folks being hired to be in key positions to make key decisions didn't go up; it went down. And what I always hear in these conversations is at the beginning part that that's wrong, that's messed up, man, they should do better. And then there's this, this thing, and maybe it's maybe my background as well, maybe my, maybe it's my Caribbean background, maybe Christian is from your background, and Adrian and, and Rosemary and, 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 and Dr. Dorsey from Detroit, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's our background, but we do this thing where we are so much trying to make it work that then we get taken advantage of. That in that process, that then we don't say, well then, man, there's these foundations who give out millions, leading up to billions of dollars to do this work that doesn't go to frontline communities. 
Christian, you mentioned we have these young people who are leading by example. This is Zero Hours, Sunrise Movement, who are putting people in, who are young, who are leading with women, uh, uh, people of color, queer people, uh, 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 all kinds of people are leading these young movements. They get it, black and white are coming together, and they are literally, literally, when they were sitting in the seat you are sitting in now, were told by large green organizations when they asked them for money that we can give you a box of truffles. They told him that, and they and so and they and, and and didn't show up when they were marching. And so what I'm saying here, are we also part of the problem? Us sometimes people of color, where we're just too daggone nice, where we are not willing to challenge the status quo. So Rosemary, I start with you and work our way around. I don't think we're too nice. I, I you know, I, I think that we try as hard as we can. Um, you know, for me, in, in the spaces that I've been in, you know, and I've been uh, in a place where, you know, I was over the budget. Um, but, you know, I think that within the environmental movement, all of these organizations feel under-resourced. And so these groups are fighting amongst themselves to, like, figure it out. So when it's time to bring in— Explain that. You know, I think that, you know— so I didn't necessarily work on climate change. I worked on water. Water is a very local issue. Um, and when you're trying to do good work at the federal level, it's hard. You're fighting it. You're trying to figure out the foundation work. Um, foundations have their own priorities and their own sets of things that they gotta, gotta that got that they have to get done. And you have to also be able to align the work you're doing with that. And so figuring out how to make that connection, but then also bring in new groups, but also make sure that the resources that you have are spread around to the people who have been, quote unquote, doing this work for years is a hard thing to figure out. And I've tried to, my best to make sure that as we bring on communities of color into these spaces that we're not being transactional. That is extremely important. If you're going to invest in these groups, invest in them for the long term. Mm. Don't let them come in to do an event here or there. No. Pay for them to have a staffer to come on board to actually learn this issue and be a part of the fight that you're fighting. Um, because that's the only way in order for people to be able to continue to have this this engagement within this space. Wow. So I think that we're trying. I know I can talk for myself. I think, you know, for me, I've tried. And it's just a hard place to be, especially when you're alone. Christian, Adrian, you want to add anything to that? Yes. Um, I don't think that we're too nice. I can, I think that historically, because we've been so underrepresented, that we've been careful Mm. And also, what do you mean when you say that? We've been careful not to give the perception of an angry black woman, mm-hmm. for example, or, uh. Uh, you know, militant or whatever in the past. Now, we also, we know, before, you know, thank God for the younger people. I love them. <laughs> but the older elders, the leaders before, they do things differently. For example, my mom, when I was talking to her about, an issue, and I was like, and I stood up for myself, but you know, this issue. She goes, You can't do that. You have to be, you know, don't, you know, you can't do that. You can't ruffle feathers. But that's where she, that's how she grew up mm. in the 60s and before. And now I think people are owning their rights. Mm-hmm. And so I don't uh. think it's a matter of being nice. I think it's a matter of biding your time 
and 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 thinking about how what you say is going to um, advance your cause. As my good friend Vernice says, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can be both, and sometimes you have to pick one. Mm-hmm. I prefer to be effective. Except when I know I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Rev, without friction, there is no acceleration. Mm. We can't move ahead seriously without friction. And so I wouldn't say that we are about being too nice, nor about being too much in somebody's face who deserves it. Sometimes we simply have to ignore the, I'll call it the silver tongue eco-bourgeoisie. And let me give you a very concrete example because I'm not going to offer up any hyperbole here. We're going to keep it real because we're in your house now. (laughs) My advice to the brothers and sisters out in Portland, who some of the listeners may not think is being so diverse, but oh, it is. They were weighing whether they should get in cahoots with those silver tongue environmental bourgeoisie who were putting their bets on old 10-year and 20-year-old proposals on cap and trade and and even carbon pricing and such foolishness. My advice to them almost a year ago this month was ignore foolishness. And what did I suggest that they get behind, which they got behind and they were beginning to get behind, was creating and lobbying and pushing for the creation of the what is now the Portland Clean Energy Fund, which is a simple 1% tax on retailers that most people, most of those wealthy environmental groups who we were just shaming earlier, who weren't betting in our communities, didn't want to get behind the NAACP, didn't want to get behind local uh, Hispanic groups like Verde that are working uh, you know, day in and day out in Portland. They didn't, those big groups didn't want to get behind the small groups, didn't want to get behind people of color. They want to put their money on stuff that was proven to be failed and a failure so our people decided to do something very new, and you know what? They won. Mm-hmm. They won. And they didn't win for the lack of friction. They won with a great deal of friction mm. that they applied to those groups that were ignoring them, as well as to those groups that were trying to stop them. And what was the result of that? $30 million a year fund was created with a great deal of struggle, with a great deal of friction, because without friction, there will not be acceleration. And so they accelerated, and now the funders that they did get to support them, those small grassroots frontline groups that were working on that proposal, they got the legislation passed. They now suddenly, almost overnight, have more money under management than some of the foundations that they got some of the handouts to to push for. So sometimes... It's not about being confrontational. It is about being strategic. And if that strategy is about friction, then so be it, because that will be the basis for acceleration. I know that's right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the environmental justice movement has never been known in being shy, um, but also looking for opportunities for real, authentic partnerships. Uh, And when those don't exist... Uh, Folks have continued to move forward um, to make change happen. Some of the most successful uh, projects, environmental projects in the country have come out of community based and led initiatives. Um, And that's why sometimes it gets so distressing when those, um, you know, who have resources, who have access, don't understand the value that communities bring to this fight 
um, to this opportunity to make change. Um, and, and when you're not listening to the grassroots. Mustafa, well, uh, you got to explain that a little more. When you say that, you mm, got to mm. kind of break that down. They don't appreciate the value. You need to unexplain what you mean when you say that. Well, sometimes I think that folks assume, and wrongly so, that the knowledge that comes from indigenous brothers and sisters is not as valuable as the knowledge that they've been able to acquire. I think that sometimes they don't necessarily see the value uh, in what African-Americans, Latinos, Asian brothers and sisters and others bring to this uh, struggle. Um, and, and we do ourselves a huge disservice. And we also slow down the opportunity to make progress to win on these issues that we call climate change. When you look at projects like Spartanburg, South Carolina, led by a small rural uh, community, a small organization that has been able to leverage almost $300 million in changes in, in, inside of their community, it's a community-led project. When you look at Miss Margaret May in Kansas City uh, and the incredible work that they've been able to do in that space, when you look at the work of the Environmental Health Coalition in San Diego and National City uh, and how they've been able to change some of the dynamics in their community to be able to take uh, and push uh, those who have been using diesel trucks and, and for some of the shipping lanes and all these changes that they've been able to make. And they are just a small example. When you look at the green zones around the country um, by environmental justice organizations talking about a just transition and showing how that actually happens, that is dynamic. And then when you look at you know, the work of Detroiters working for environmental justice and the Green Door Initiative, where they actually have worker training programs, where you've, you've got like 87, 90 percent of the people who go through the programs who get their own jobs. That's this new paradigm that we're supposed to be focused on. Um, and that's the value that communities of color, some, you know, in, in many, many instances bring to this, these sets of examples of how real change can happen. Now, you flip that, Rev. And you look at some of these initiatives where people have pumped millions of dollars into, like Dr. Dorsey just talked about, you know, these old paradigms that people utilize and some of these other initiatives that, you know, people will invite me around the country. Hey, Mustafa, come see this. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I know people who got $50,000 and have been able to do more than some of these initiatives that have had millions of dollars go in. And that's why... You know, we've got to address this diversity issue, but more than just the diversity issue, folks have got to value the expertise that Mrs. Ramirez, who I often talk about, Mr. Johnson, you know, and, and many of the others bring to this process. For those who are just tuning in, we are, we are having a conversation that really boils down to this. We want to solve the climate change crisis. That's what this is. We, 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 it's happening. It's affecting our country and our world. And we want to do something about it. And right now, um, the, the modern day environmental movement as it was constructed, um, which has had many victories, as we've said before, and that a, a lot of great things, as it is constructed for a number of reasons, begin to be, as I like to say, a, a kind of Birkenstock movement. Mm. And so I think that now, are the other folks on the other side know this and they realize that our movement is not big enough to, to win. And that's our goal. Our goal is that how do we go outside and become big enough to win? And so we have some folks in this who have been in the movement here, folks from all different aspects of life who are tuning in. And I said before, who, who, who want to this, who really at, at our core, want this to, to be successful. So Mustafa, I kind of want you just to fill up 
finish up on what you were saying on this on this one particular issue on regards to the EJ movement, because I think so folks who don't actually environmental justice movement and Big Green. Now, Mustafa, before you get to that, I want to say this. You know, I come out of, um, many folks know, I was a former officer in, in the Air Force. And so I realized in, in that there wasn't many people of color who were officers, but there was a mission that was there. So it was, a, it was, I, it was something there. I also come out of, also as well as the Rumpton Movement, come out of the Civil Rights Movement. The one thing I remember in the Civil Rights Movement, um, there were groups who were large civil rights organizations, meaning that they had resources, mm-hmm. but we didn't call them big civvies, right? <laughs> like folks say big greens. They didn't say, what were them big civvies? And they got a big civvies meeting that was going on. And, you know, man, they better go get Mark Morial and check over at Urban League. They did, and that wasn't kind of the case. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say this, that my mentor, Dr. Dorothy Irene Height, um, who was there, definitely was a was an elder who brought everybody to the table. So as you talk about value, is there anybody who can, and this is for everybody, but is there anybody who can bring everybody to the table in an authentic way so people can be valued? Well, I don't think that that's the goal for there to be the one. The beauty of the environmental justice movement is there's not the one. Um, there are a number of different organizations and networks, and everybody understands that each individual community speaks for themselves, and you value that. You know, that's the beauty. You know, I, I have not yet seen, and you know, Rev, you and I, and all the folks here who are around the room, you know, we are on boards, we engage with, we have friends and, and all these different types of organizations, but I have not seen a set of principles, you know, that, that all the folks sort of work from. Now, in the environmental justice movement, we have the 17 principles of environmental justice. And we also work from the Jimenez principles as well. So that's a part of this. And, you know, what is it that you stand for? What is it that is your driving force besides just that we're going to lose the planet if we don't get it together? Um, and, And how is your movement connected to real people? And that's where there has been sort of a disconnect for some of the organizations in the sense that their actions were not reflective of what, you know, lots of different types of people were actually asking for. And and that's the beauty of the environmental justice movement. And I'm going to let Dr. Dorsey chime in here. Now, we got to go back a little bit in history, Rev, Mm. because we cannot forget that there were those iconic, they weren't big civvies. But let's remember what Brother Malcolm called him. He called him Big Six. Mm-hmm. That was it. He used to say Martin King. That's how he said it now. Yep. And it was J- John Lewis, Jim Farmer, A. Philip Randolph, Roy Wilkins, and old Whitney Young is what Malcolm used to say. So now that's important not to cast a, a bad light. No, but no, we not need at to all. We, we need to remember the issue of Grass tops and grassroots, mm-hmm. how we allocate resources, who speaks for whom. Those problems, I think, I won't go as far as saying universal, but those problems are as perennial as the trees. And we need to be keen and aware of them as we rethink movements, as we open doors on new movements, as we refashion movements. And I think that that kind of thinking is underway with tension, with friction within the green movement. Environmental justice movement, not new. When, when Reverend King lost his life, he was advocating on behalf of trash workers, mm-hmm. you know? 
Some people don't know that. Mm-hmm. So there's a deep, deep backstory here that I think we need to put in that kind of political, economic, historical context so that it will properly inform us as we go forward. Anthony, I'm going to come to you. Chris, I actually want to come to you. Anthony, get ready for your question. Chris, I just want to come to you right now because you are, I wouldn't say new to this, but I want to say that when I know that when you did a very amazing act, when you had baby in hand um, <laughs> and you got Scott Pruitt at lunch and told him he needed to resign, it was at a critical moment um, when we actually were all doing the Boot Pruitt. And I don't even, I don't know if you even knew, probably knew a little bit about the Boot Pruitt, but all the dynamics in that process. But now, actually, because now this movement, as Rosemary kind of said, and Rosemary, I want to get in that in that house. I want to come to y'all on this, so y'all get ready. <laughs> but this movement, you kind of grow up quick. So what you didn't know then, one, you, you still have that same passion and fire. But now that you know what you know, I guess, where are you now as you are hearing these kind of reports? That now that you know more about the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you, where, how do you feel now, where, where you are? On the one hand, it's very daunting because there's so much work to be done. And the more you dig, the more you find out, <laughs> you know, has to be changed. Um, the systemic problems that are, that are inherent in, in trying to even get to the environmental problems. There's just, there's just layers upon layers. And that's very daunting. On the other hand, there are so many people who have been working so hard on this and continue to be who are so brilliant. And I'm constantly astounded by that. So that that gives me that gives me great hope. So so both of those things, you know, and, and I'll say that one thing that I that became very apparent very quickly, the more I've kind of dove into this world is that there's a this there's this huge disconnect between local grassroots organizations and then you've got like people on the hill, for example, you know, and there's and there's a there's a disconnect, you know, in the big greens, and there's just this huge disconnect there that really we need to find a way to sew those together because we are, f- are we are fighting the same battle, and I and I think that there are people in that second group who might not realize how much we are fighting that same battle. Mm. Um, and, you know, when you asked, you know, are, are people of color being, you know, too nice or too polite? You know, and I'm picturing all of these protests all happening all, you know, across the country about various pipelines, about water, about no, you know, like communities are, are getting loud and they're working really hard, but they need to stop being seen as isolated issues that are just affecting this poor community here, this community of color here. These are systemic issues. That's why it's a repeating pattern that mm-hmm. we're that we're seeing the hurricanes all of these things and and that needs to be in- addressed by people who have you know all of the power and all of the money and i think that the way that that's going to happen is those people who are working in the in those local levels we need to get more and more of them into those legislative positions into mm. the big greens and i think we're starting to see that happen and and we really i'm hoping to see that uh continue to accelerate mm. uh, I, i'll just kind of add on to, to what you said. You know, oftentimes when we talk about the the big greens um, and, and working with communities of color, we're like, we want them to join us in this fight. Mm-hmm. But what about their fights? They need you to join in on their fights, too. Hold on, now. We get to that again, Rosemary. You got to drop some knowledge. Come on, on now. You got to that one more time for the folks, Rosemary. No, I mean, you, you, we talk about the civil rights work and how, you know, it was, it, it kind of spanned across spec, sex um, spectrums. You know, he was, Dr. King was working with trash workers. Then he went, he was in Selma doing work, you know, on voting rights. It's just, you know, 
going in and working with folks on the ground and making sure that you're fighting alongside of them is so important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I said, we talk about here in D.C., we need folks to fight alongside of us. We need black and brown (laughs) folks, women. We need moms to be fighting along with us. But these people are facing real issues in their communities. Come on. Mm -hmm. Um, People are fighting for their lives. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's all, you know, kind of on the surface when you're talking about, yeah, we want to protect water and and we want to, you know, make sure that people are able to swim in it, fish in it. Well, folks in Detroit or in Philly can't even, are barely able to drink it. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're not thinking about swimming. They're not thinking about fishing. They're thinking about, my kid is, is ingesting all types of toxins. So we need to think about how we can join into the fights with folks on the local level and support them in the work that they're doing in order for them to even want to come and help uh, help us uh, fight the fights that we're fighting at, at the national level. It's so important. I mean, I, you know, I was at the EPA when Flint happened. Mm. And I can't say that a bunch of folks from D.C. were, scram- were scrambling to come to be like, okay, let me help, let me help. You know, I, 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 I didn't see it. I don't know about other folks, but I didn't necessarily mm. see it. Mm. Um, but it also kind of gets technical. It, it depends on how you work on these issues. It, how, it depends on how you address climate change or how you address water. And so, like, we got to get all of that out of the mix and just figure out how to stand with each other, how to fight mm-hmm. alongside of each other, mm-hmm. because we need each other to support us in these fights. Yeah. True solidarity. Uh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Yeah, so um, this is Adrian. I wanted to, I'm going to take a page out of uh, Dr. Dorsey's book and, and, and do a little bit of history. One of my um, colleagues said, um, Dr. Kasima Boston, the backstory is the front story. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, um, you know, I was a professor for a number of years before I went to law school. So why did I go to law school? I was at a meeting with Dr. Mildred McLean from Harambe House and, and some others, uh, Dr., uh, Reverend Brendan Jenkins Bozeman and some others. And I said, what is it that you need uh, uh, from people? Like, what is it that if you could just say, have one thing, what would it be? We need people to help us understand. We need people who look like us. We need lawyers who look like us mm-hmm. to help us understand issues. You know, that was one of the things they said. So uh, as I went to law school, you know, and, and I did go from as a result of that conversation, although I didn't get them to pay for it. I should have waited a little longer. <laughs> but do you know the thing about the reason I bring that up is because I just read the other day that there are only 4% of African-American lawyers in the field. Mm-hmm. And so my point is, a lot of things haven't changed. Things that we know need to change haven't changed. And so the movement has been, the message has been, we do better together. So um, in keeping with what Rosemary said, we're all fighting the same issue. Well, those of us who are fighting for this are fighting the same issue. We're just coming at it from different from different um, avenues. So what we need to do is work together. You have resources. We have knowledge. You have knowledge. We need resources, you know. And so we need to work with non-traditional partnerships more. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that has always been my message um, here you know, the last no, few no, years, no. I guess. Yeah. And we just want to remind everybody to listen and think 100% the coolest show on climate change. Call in 202-588-0893. 202-588-0893. I'm laughing at Mustafa because I don't know. Because we, this show is so fast. He's So when the content is so good, his his internal clock is off. So he's thinking like we got like a whole laptop left. It ain't nothing for like about five, ten minutes left in the whole show. And it's like he's thinking we can grab from a whole bunch of cuts. Uh, that's hilarious. How has 
the failure of leadership among environmental organizations in achieving diversity impacted the movement work, like the actual work in the streets mm. and in the suite, as Rev would say. <laughs> you know, it has been uh, both a resource drain uh, in terms mm. of, you know, just bodies and, and money. Uh, it has also been, I think, uh, a degree of both a distraction and inspiration uh, mm. because we can be moved uh, and inspired to rise above that foolishness. Um, but at the same time, uh, given this, the relative size of some of these groups, uh, it has to be responded to uh, because some of the groups have lots of resources and, and some of the ones that don't have a lot of resources command uh, lots of attention. Dr. Dorsey, does, uh, does, that, does that hurt them? Um, let me explain what I mean. Kind of what Rosemary was saying. Um, if when I grew up in a, in, a, in a West Indian household, and in that, I, we were kind of trained to share um, because my mother actually, she was, she actually, mother actually got her PhD, but while she was getting her PhD, she learned how to sew. She's a seamstress. Again, if you know kind of people from different cultures, you understand what I'm talking about. So in other words, you would do things to make it, right? What I'm saying here to you and really everybody is the climate movement's uh, abundance, they're actually their burden. Meaning that then they don't need to actually look to other groups to be a part. They don't need to share. There's no need to. In other words, because because you almost you have enough yourself, you aren't forced to then break down the silos. Is that actually a, a hindrance to the movement? It is in the way you're describing it. And let me put a fine point on it. I'll say it was a larger hindrance before than it is now today. And that has a lot to do with the, the fact that the economics and the finances have changed. The numbers are now on our side. Hmm. You know, solar and wind are cheaper than that dirty 20th century stuff called oil and, and, and coal. So that was not the case just five years ago. It definitely wasn't the case 10 years ago. So when that reality has shifted, there was a problem, a greater problem that you're describing in the past. That problem is becoming less so now because groups like in Portland, groups elsewhere, can ignore the perennial racism of these environmental groups and get on with something new and not just mobilize more people, mobilize more effective people, mobilize those on the front lines, those on the fence line, but also end up with more money than those fools who are trying to hoodwink them and were trying to hoodwink them. Because the time has changed. The time has changed. And I, I've got to jump in. No, definitely. Um, because one of the things that I see, you know, you asked the question, Rev, is it hurting them? And I think it is. And I'm going to tell you why. Um, I see, um, I have observed over the past few years that um, organizations, some organizations who say they want to hire diverse um, pers diverse people, they will instead get a diverse applicant pool and then hire the youngest, most inexperienced person mm. because they don't have to pay them what they would pay somebody with more experience. Yeah, that hurts. That hurts the movement. You have somebody coming in there with, and, and it, my thing is tra they're trainable, that's fine, but you need somebody in there who has experience to lead that 
you know, to lead that and bring people with them. But I think that the way things have been going um, the last few years is has de- definitely been detrimental to both communities and to the organization's business. Wow, wow. Mustafa, you, we're, we're, we're actually at that time. I want you to ask our panel around the Robin so they can have, everybody can have a closing question and answer. Well, let, let's, let's uh, focus on the State of the Union. Number 45 will be speaking, and folks who want to answer this can answer this. What do you expect to hear from him? Or what would you like to hear from him? Do it well, both sides. Very different questions. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's go with on both sides of that coin. What yeah. do you expect to hear from him, especially in relationship to climate and the environment? And what would you like to hear from him? And I'll, I'll just leave you with the picture here, because we've been talking about the lack of diversity in some of the uh, respective organizations that are out there. We also, there's a lack of diversity when we look at his cabinet, um, when we look at many of the meetings that he has. So I'll leave that for our climate uh, brothers and sisters uh, to say, if he's supposed to be more diverse, then we should be more diverse. But let's just go with the question um, around what do you expect to hear and what would you like to hear? Kristen? I expect that he is going to deliver a bunch of lies that you know, I'm going to read a good book instead. So <laughs> I, I don't think he's going to actually say anything useful or, or honest or true, because just statistically speaking, that's not what tends to come out of his mouth. What I would like to hear him say is that he's stepping down as president, <laughs> effective immediately. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, you know, Pence is going to be indicted tomorrow and Pelosi's the, the, the new president. She's going to be re- replacing, you know, the entire cabinet with people other than, you know, lobbyists and execs. Uh, that's what I that's what I would like to hear. Um, that's not what he's going to say. So um, as far as I'm concerned, the State of the Union address is a big nothing. And uh, we all just need to keep our heads down and keep working. Hmm. All right. Rosemary. I hear you. I, I think she said it all. <laughs> I, I, I would agree. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, you said it, but I would say that what I would like for him to realize is that when it comes to climate change and when it comes to environmental issues, you got to think about it from the health of communities because we're having some big health problems because of this work. I mean, if you go into a room and you tell folks, raise your hand if you know somebody who, uh, know a child that doesn't walk around with an inhaler. Mm -hmm. Nobody can raise their hand Mm -hmm. because everybody knows kids who are having issues breathing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a problem. Um, It's a real problem. And we all are seeing the effects of it. And so, I would I would just say to my fellow panelists, you said it all. <laughs> Dr. D. The smart money never pays attention to the foolhardy. Mm. You know, we, I, I think we have to, you know, put foolishness aside. Uh, you know, when you see the man hollering on the corner, you may uh, think about and pray for him or, or the woman on the corner hollering or her, pray for them. But you tend to cross the street to get on with the business that you need to be getting on with. So for us, I think our task is to do what so many people, not just in communities are doing, but groups like Sunrise, uh, groups in Portland, groups on the fence line, on the front line, they're doing something beautiful. And I'll offer to your listeners that they are rehearsing the future. And that's what we need to be about. We need to rehearse the future. And we need to remind ourselves every day that our task going forward is rehearsing the future. Mm 
Yeah, so Mustafa started something. So he said the phone lines, and the phone lines with y'all amazing oh, guests no. in here all started lighting up. And I knew, I said, Mustafa Santiago Ali. Yeah. But with that, uh, our engineer is saying we got the phone lines buzzing, so we will take, let's take one call and for, for y'all before we wrap up. And please be brief. I will. This is Miss Mary from Fort Washington. Love your show, and I agree with the lady that just spoke about everything. So much <laughs> but I will say this, I don't expect anything but lies. Lies do the whole time he's talking. He won't stop lying until he's finished. And I don't want him to say anything except, do I have to walk out here with these handcuffs on? Peace <laughs> out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Miss Mary. We really appreciate your call. Thank you for always uh, listening Mary, to our show. Speaking everybody's mind. <laughs> there it is. Well, I think I think we listen. We're we're going to wrap up. Uh, I start with our our co-host. Mustafa, anything you want to add before you close out? No, we just have to be focused on moving vulnerable communities, our most vulnerable communities, from surviving to thriving. And if we're going to do that, then that means that we all have to come together in solidarity, but we have to have authentic relationships. And that means from the top to the bottom. Um, And we just have to honor the voices of communities and allow them. no, No, not allow them. We have to create the space where everyone's voice can be a driver in the process. Mm. Anthony, if you no, add. He said it. That is right. And yes, I'm in full agreement with the uh, <laughs> with what we would like to hear tonight from the State of the Union. And yes, Mustafa, uh, the voices need, we need to be heard. Period. We need to be heard and we need to be able to take action for the frontline communities because we are the frontline communities. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, I, I want to say thank you to uh, Dr. Adrian Hollis, to Rosemary Nabakre. I want to say th- thank you to Dr. Michael Dorsey and to Christian Mink and to all, all of you who have been in here today. I just want to say this in closing. Please, for all of the groups who are listening, know that this show was done in love. Um, we are fighting for future generations. They will look upon what we do and say that if we all come together and because they now live and have clean air and clean water, we were successful. So with that, on that note, thank you for tuning in to this special edition of State of the Climate, Think 1%, the coolest show on climate change. God bless you all. All power to the people. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun, and I say, it's all right Little darling It's been a long, cold, lonely winter Big one, honey, the big one, honey Big one, honey, the big one, honey Thanks for joining us this week on Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change, a hip-hop caucus platform. Let's keep this important dialogue going. Be a part of the conversation by following us on social media at Think100Show and at Hip Hop Caucus. Visit our website at think100.info for blog content, information on upcoming events, or to connect with us. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Rate and review us or simply tell a friend. 
Climate change impacts all of us, and if we think 100%, we can achieve a 100% sustainable and just world together.